Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. Well, cool. We're very lucky today to have a special guest. We hit the road up here in Marysville to come up to Rustic Brew Farms and talk with Matt Cunningham. Sitting in the malt house right, right now. How you doing, Matt? Great. Thanks for coming out, guys. Thanks for making the trip. Man. Oh, yeah. It's pretty out here. <laughs> it's a muddy mess now. The snow's melting off. We were under about a foot of snow last week, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's been a hard winter. Yeah. Looking forward to spring. Yes. Speaking for myself, anyway. Yeah. Yep, same here. So, Matt, when did the Rustic Brew Farms get off the ground? Probably the fall of 2014 is when we planted the first test plot of barley. That's a new crop for our farm. We hadn't grown barley before that. So we wanted to, you know, kind of get our feet under us a little bit and see what it was going to be like. The fall of 2014, I planted one acre. It came up and looked really great. And then uh, a gaggle of geese moved in on me one night and just devoured it, ate it all wow (laughs) that was my first experience in growing barley (laughs) i mean there wasn't a a plant left so anyway spring of 15 i got some spring barley and planted 50 acres i thought one acre failed so let's plant 50 instead so (laughs) let the geese take that Uh, yeah i figured they couldn't do as much damage to that that went much better let's see that was yeah the summer of 2015 started malting that on a pretty much a home-built system uh little fish actually was our first ever customer and made some good beer out of that. And then so we just sort of kept growing from there. What made you go into malting? So maybe just to back up a little bit, it's a pretty big farm you have, and it's been in the family for many generations, right? Yeah. So I'm the fourth generation that we know of. And uh, commodity markets just get really tight back in like 2013, 2014. It's just the way everything's moving, sort of. It's uh, favoring the large kind of corporate farms. And we farm about 2,500 acres, which is fairly average for around here. A lot of family farms do that. But the way it was going, you know, I'm taking over my family's farm. I'm looking at everything. We got to get to either 10,000 acres, you know, farm that much. Wow. Okay. Because the margins are so tight. Yeah. Or, you know, do something else. I'm not putting anybody down that farms that much, but it's kind of like the Walmart philosophy, just super high volume, super low margin. Yeah. 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 A lot of work, a lot of risk for not much margin. So I wanted to get into something a little more specialty just to try to kind of save our farm. I didn't see the future in what we were doing. I thought we were going to get gobbled up by some, some another bigger farm. So when I saw the craft beer just exploding and, and loved a lot of that, so I wanted to be a part of that. So, so I actually started growing hops first. Okay, how'd that go? It's tough. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. mean, Ohio's not really known for hops. I know there are some hop farms. Yeah, there's some pretty decent ones now, yeah. But it's tough. It's a big learning curve, too. But it can be done. And it's been proved. There's a lot of farms out there now doing it in Ohio that are great. I'm still growing them, but I'm still at such a small scale. I did the malt and the the hops at the same time. And obviously the malt's grown quite a bit faster. So I've been focusing on that. But that's in my future to expand the hop yard a little bit more too. So Okay, that's cool. Well, as a visual for the listeners, we are sitting amongst bags of grain right now. We're in the malt house. Actually, right now there's some grain being sprouted as we speak. Yep, we got two molding drums in here. We added the second one in 2020, so we doubled our capacity in the middle of a pandemic, which was great. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yep, the ones we got finished kilning yesterday, so we're going to bag that tomorrow, and then the other one's in the middle of the germination process, so 
It'll be done in probably four days. Okay, cool. Well, we're pretty far into the show for not opening a beer. We yeah. should have a beer, don't you think? Well, one, Pat's lying because we all have a beer in our hand. We just haven't <laughs> mentioned it yet. And this is North High's cover crop. So this is a beer that is a collaboration between North High Brewing and the Ohio Farm Bureau. That's not your normal kind of collaboration. Right. And it involves your malts, doesn't it, Matt? Yeah, I started working with North High just before this on a small scale. And um, Ohio Farm Bureau approached them. Uh, they had their 100th anniversary, and they wanted to partner with a local brewery and brew a beer to highlight Ohio agriculture. So they wanted to use some local grains. Lucky me, I just started working with North High at that point. So they called me and said, you want to? work on this project with us. And I said, yeah, sure. So they use our uh, our pale malt in that, and it went over really well for the Farm Bureau's 100th anniversary, so much that they are continuing it indefinitely now. And I think it's distributed in all 88 counties. It's everywhere, yeah. So this has been around a couple of years, and I thought it might be like a lot of things in beer today. You know, it would be brewed, and it would be kind of a special thing, and then yeah. we would never see it again. Yeah. But I think it's been a good seller for them. Yeah, I think so. It helps that it's really light, pretty malt forward, which, you know, I like about it. The hops don't bury the malt, so the malt shines through. <laughs> yeah, it's got a really good malt nose to it and real clean, crackery. It's nice. Yeah. That's our pale malt, which is our base malt. Could be called a two-row base malt, but it's about a two-and-a-half color. It's got a good taste for being a base malt. Um, the enzymes are still high enough, around 120 DP, so it's, you know, still plenty for a base malt. And it's probably the freshness is what also helps, the freshness of the malt. Yeah, the flavor really comes through in that, too. Oh, definitely. Yeah, this is really good. And, man, it is a crusher, too. I mean, this goes down pretty quick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's got a, a nice kind of malt sweetness, but very crushable, as you say. Maybe just a hint of maybe minerality in the water. I don't know if you pick that up. There's something just a little bit kind of interesting that's underneath the malt sweetness. And, uh, you know, if I were to think back to my youth or the beers that my parents drank, like this is almost like the perfection of what those beers were supposed to be. Yeah, it's all malt, too. So you're, uh, you get a little more body than a traditional light beer, you know. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about the agriculture of, you know, growing barley. I mean, I, I don't know all of our listeners, but probably not all that up to speed on farming. When do you plant the barley? When do you harvest the barley? What kind of barley do you grow? Which comes first? Is I, it, I think you have to plant it first. The, but, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. the seed is also barley. But it's a grain, I guess. Yep. You call a finished product a grain. You know, the seed but is when you're planting plant. it, you're planting it is the a same. seed. It grows. That's what I'm doing now, right? I'm germinating it. I'm growing That's it. That's right. So it is still a seed, yeah. So these are all excellent questions that I had too when I started because we had never grown barley before. I didn't know anyone in the state that had grown barley. A few for feed, which is a six-row, super high-protein barley. But as far as malting barley, I didn't know anyone that was growing it. So I leaned a lot on Michigan State and Cornell. They had some trials and similar climates. But as far as to when you plant it, it's a lot like wheat. There are spring varieties and winter varieties. Spring varieties you plant in the spring. The winter varieties over winter, you plant them in the fall. That first year, I planted a spring variety, and our springs are just so wet. It's really tough to get a stand, get an emergence. It's just too much rain, and they drowned out. Or they don't like a lot of water. So after that, in 2016, I planted a winter variety. Um, you plant it in the fall. When the ground temperature is nice and warm, it's usually a lot drier, so it's way easier to get the plant up and the roots established. We plant it late September, early October, and it'll grow to get about six inches tall or so and then go dormant for the winter but it doesn't like super cold temperatures it will die if it gets too cold so this last cold spell we had when it was around zero 
thankfully we had a foot of snow on it. So that was like a nice blanket to keep it warm and insulated and still growing. In the spring, it starts greening up and takes off again because it's already got a head start, you know, from last fall. And then we'll harvest about mid-June sometime. Okay. Um, and then that's the grain, right? That will is still a seed, but that's what we bring in here to the malt house and clean it up and start molding it. In order to have the grade of grain that you would want for molding, fertilizer, how much, you know, yeah. I think that has to be very specific, doesn't it? Yep. Nitrogen basically makes protein. If you put too much nitrogen on, that makes a nice healthy plant, but your protein is going to be too high and it's going to be out of molding specs. It's kind of counterintuitive for a farmer. You know, you want this nice, big, healthy plant, but if you fertilize it too much, it's basically junk. So you got to cut back on the fertilizer. And these are all things you find out, you know, as you're going, but it's year by year. If you do it too much the first year, you're, you're another year out before you can make an adjustment on the next year's crop. So, wow. so it's kind of tough, but yeah, there've been a lot of studies on it. So I did you know, some research and had a lot of help along the way. And we got some stuff that's in spec. But yeah, you're right. We got to test for about 12 different numbers before we can go ahead and mold it. What are some of the other specs that you need to meet? Protein's a big one, um, but then also germination. Uh, If it gets rained on in the field, some of the grains will start sprouting in the field. And that's basically molting in the field, but it's uncontrolled. So once you bring it in the malt house, it doesn't perform because it's already started. You know, it's already used some of that energy. So germination's one, and that the pre-harvest sprouting uh, is an RVA number. They test for that just to see where the enzymes are. If there are any present, that means it's already started. So we want that to be nice and low. Um, and then uh, vomitoxin is a big one. Fusarium is a disease we have in Ohio because of the corn. It lives on corn, mm. and there's corn everywhere. So yeah. it can infect the barley. And since it's for human consumption, if it's over one part per million, it's illegal to malt, actually. And that's almost nothing. One part per million yeah. is very low. What can you do as a farmer to prevent that from getting into your barley? I have to use a two-pass fungicide program, which is the one thing preventing me from going organic. I do have one organic field right behind the malt house here. And I would put barley there in a heartbeat. I'd love to do that. But I am so scared <laughs> of that disease. And the organic fungicides aren't quite as powerful. Um, I've talked to a lot of people, and it's been done. There's organic grains out there. I'm just really worried the way I'm set up most of my supply comes from myself so if my crop has too much vomitoxin I can't use it you know I'm, I'm shut down for a year and I can't have that yeah so, yeah so that's still at this point too big of a risk for me I may try some in small quantities and see how I get along but for now that's the one thing keeping me from organic as a home brewer and a lot of brewers out there will know a few well-known strains from Europe like Maris Otter or Golden Promise or Optic but as a maltster or even as a brewer, how much does the type of barley matter, do you think? It matters, especially for flavor. You know, I'm small enough where I don't have to worry too much about trying to chase after those proprietary types. What I was looking for is just something that would grow well enough here and hit my molding numbers so I could mold it, make good malt, but also grow well here. You know, that's the big sure. thing. It's not a traditional crop here in Ohio, so... So I experimented around. Um, Newdale was a spring variety I grew, and I think it would be fine, but it was it's just hard to grow spring varieties here. And then I went to Scala, which is a winter variety, and that's fine too. That's still a really great variety, but I just switched to Lima Grain Violetta. In the malt house, they're almost identical. They're both great. Uh, the one advantage I liked about the Violetta was it dried down evenly in the field because you want it to dry down in the field without getting rained on, so you want it to dry down quickly before rain comes in because at that point the seed is mature 
So it will start growing if it gets wet. So that had the slight edge for me. So that's what I switched to. And so far, so good. I like it. Okay. If we go back a century or so, was there barley grown in Ohio? Or did even at that time, did a lot of the barley or a lot of the malt come from out of state? No, I think there was a lot grown in Ohio. Same with the hops. There were a lot of hops grown in Ohio too. But, you know, the weather coupled with prohibition just made it too tough and that pretty much killed both of them. But yeah, so it was grown here, you know, which gave me hope that it could be done. It's been done before. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, I have just a trinket of knowledge about this because uh, my grandfather was a farmer in Idaho and he grew wheat and barley. Actually, if you think about where like the barley in North America comes from, it is from Idaho, Montana, the Dakotas, up into Canada, I think. Isn't that where a lot of the barley comes from that goes into the beer that we all enjoy? Montana's a big state, Idaho, yep, the Dakotas, yeah. And one of the things out there is just the amount of moisture is very different, you know. Where where I grew up in Idaho, we get 13 inches of rain per year. Yeah. There are some months uh, where we get that here in Ohio, right? Yes. yes. And especially in the spring, right? So I could see the uh, appeal of winter barley. Yeah, I got a good friend in Power, Montana, who grows a lot of barley for Coors, but he recently built his own malt drum, kind of like I did, and so we keep in close contact. His is called Farm Power Malt. I'll give him a little shout out. He's uh, in Power, Montana. Great guy, and he's the same way, where he just he grows a lot of barley for Coors, but then he kept some of it back to malt himself uh, on the craft scale. And uh, yeah, I was talking to him. They're so dry out there, they don't have to worry about disease too much. Yeah. And uh, I said, you probably don't even know what a drainage tile is, do you? <laughs> he said, I've seen one before, yeah. <laughs> so, but they have to do some irrigating is their challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always challenges. Yeah, one of the things I remember when I was in college going to a symposium one day of talks, and they were saying that Idaho uses the third most water of any state in the U.S., even for, at that time, only a million people. It's for agriculture? Yeah, for agriculture. Yeah. You know, my, my grandfather had a dry farm, but at some point it just became, well, I mean, he retired in the late 70s, so, you know, it's a different world. But I think now there's almost no farms left that are not irrigated because the equipment costs so much that if you don't yeah. have the kind of yield, because the yield oh, between yeah. an irrigated farm and, a, and what we would call a dry farm is probably a factor four or five, it just doesn't make sense anymore to right. farm that way. My buddy out in Montana has got several farms that are not irrigated, and he told me they only farm those every other year. They'll let them sit for a year to basically build up their water table and then farm them the next year. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. Kind of back to the cover crop. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is, that's a crop that you might plant to prevent erosion and to let the soil rejuvenate. Is that cover a Cover crop fair? is. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yep. And I think that's the spotlight right now in Ohio. A lot of the soil health you know, enthusiasts, which I'm quickly becoming one, are realizing that really good for the soil and the soil microbes to have a living crop there all year. Barley is an excellent cover crop. It's more than just a cover crop, obviously, but, you know, it grows all winter. So you have living roots in the soil all winter long that help that microbe population thrive even in the winter months. When you have bare dirt, there's nothing for them to feed on. The population goes way down. So, and then you get erosion and everything else that comes with it. So, yeah, we're starting to implement a lot more cover crops other than just uh, barley on our farm. We got a nine-way mix for corn that's supposed to nitrify the soil over the winter. It's got a lot of clover and hairy vetch and a lot of things in it. But uh, okay. Okay. So we're really getting into that a little more. I think it does a lot of good things for the soil. If you harvest in June the barley, can you make use of the soil for the rest of the summer? Or what, yeah, what do you I, do with that? I usually double crop soybeans behind it. That's one huge advantage of barley. It comes off probably two weeks before wheat and that time of year 
one or two days is a big head start. So if you can get two weeks, yeah, that's really good. The barley straw seems to do wonders for the beans. Those double crop beans that typically only get half a harvest, if I put them after the barley, they're yielding the same as some of my regular planted beans. They do really well. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And it's another plant on it for yeah. several months out of the year. Mm-hmm. So all of us beer drinkers out there, we're doing some good, maybe. Saving you know, the world. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> that's <laughs> exactly what we're doing. You're <laughs> yeah. right. Saving the earth. Absolutely. That's right. Which, which speaking of that, actually, I, <laughs> I know that my glass is empty. We might need some more saving of the earth to go on. Yeah, it went pretty quick, didn't it? <laughs> so, well, we did call it a crusher. We've got another beer that this was made, I think, using your malts primarily as well. And this is from Grove City Brewing. We went out and saw Trevor yesterday afternoon so we could bring you one of your customers' beers. Awesome. And he was very hospitable. He always uh, is. Trevor's great. Yeah, there might have been more beer wrapped around just getting this beer. (laughs) Uh, And we decided to do some malt-forward beers because we're focused on the malts here. So a Doppelbach, what a perfect beer to be a malt showcase you know it's got to be one of the maltiest beers in the pantheon just to describe for the listeners out there we've got i would say you know copper colored good clarity you know it's got kind of a a nuttiness to it a little bit Mm -hmm. and some caramel sweetness like you'd like in a doppelbach but not too cloying Mm -hmm. lieutenant dan doppelbach that's right and i think that he named this lieutenant dan just because he had watched Forrest Gump right before he brewed it. So I think that's the story he gave us, which, hey, it works, man. I think you make a special base malt for him. And then also he said this was your Munich 30 as well that went into this. So tell us a little bit about the kilning process and what makes the various kilns of malt and some of these characters that we're enjoying right now. Sure. So it's really interesting part, uh, which is why I only grow one variety of barley is because with the same variety of barley, you can make basically all the kinds of malts, you know, 30, 40 different kinds of malt, just uh, by the way you malt it. And I would say the kiln temperature, the final kiln temperature is what has the most impact on color and flavor. Uh, but it's a lot of things. It's steep out moisture and germination temperature. I mean, you really got to start right from the beginning to try to make a certain kind of malt. We have to send it off and get it tested to make sure, A, the main one for me is disease is not present. And knock on wood, fortunately, with that Two-pass fungicide system, I've kept disease negligible, almost zero, uh, non-detectable. So that's been great. So after we know it's malt-quality barley, that'll make you know good malt. Yeah, we run it through the seed cleaner to get the chaff and dirt and everything out of it. And then we load it into the malt drum. Our malt drums, we do all three stages of malting in the same drum, steeping, germination, and kilning. So we uh, flip the tank upside down and fill it with water, just to let the barley soak up water. And that's called steeping or wet immersions. And that takes a series of uh, immersions and air rests. You know, you drain the water and and blow some air on it for two to three days. And that varies depending on how the barley reacts to water. There's another test called water sensitivity. Um, It could be sensitive to water where you have to do shorter wet immersions, you know, underwater and longer air rests. So you got to play with that a little bit to find out your, your routine. But then uh, we try to get the moisture content. When we bring it in from the field, it's about 12 to 13% moisture. We try to raise that all the way up to, well, anywhere between 40 and 50%, depending on what type of malt we're going to make. So once we hit that target, we can start the germination process, which is just blowing humidified, cool air through the grain to keep it cool because it will generate heat at that point because it's starting to grow, starting to germinate and 
put out rootlets and, and grow. So we have to keep it cool. And then we turn the drums once or twice a day just to mix up the grain. A lot of people see the drums and think they're roasting drums, but they're not. It's actually just a static kiln floor. The only reason I rotate the drums is to mix up the grain. Because if you don't, the roots will just bind together and make a, a solid brick that you can't get air through. And that will rot right away, like within a day. So you got to keep the grain bed fluffy, for lack of a better word, to get air through it. And then after we monitor the temperature and the humidity, uh, we make sure the moisture stays the same throughout. Uh, it drops a little bit, but we don't want it to dry out too much. And once I'm satisfied uh, that that's well modified, um, I start up the kiln furnace in the same drum. And we do the first 24 hours as a withering stage. It's low heat and a lot of airflow just to dry the grain out, stop it from growing and dry it out. Um, but low heat, low temperature, so we don't damage any of the enzymes. And then after that's dry, that gets down to about 10% moisture, the grain does. Um, and the second day, we start ramping up the temperature slowly. And that is what develops the color and the flavor. The higher the temperature, the more flavor you're going to get and color, darker color. So... But all of that started in the uh, steep out moisture, going back to the beginning. Uh, you basically create the building blocks for color, and then the kiln, you know, transforms that into color and flavor. So, you know, five degrees in the final kiln temperature really makes a difference in color. Depending on what we're trying to make, uh, we adjust that final cure temperature. And then once it's done, clean it again, run it through the seed cleaner again, and bag it up and take it down to the brewery. What would be like the temperature of, say, a pale base mall pilsner or something like that versus like the Munich 30 where there's a lot of rich, toastier character? Toastier, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our pilsner, we kiln at about 165 Fahrenheit okay. um, is the final kiln temperature. That's the lowest of the low for pilsner malt. And so you may get a little DMS, you know, with that just because that's the pilsner malt. Um, that color will come out at like 16, 1.6, 1.7, somewhere in there. But our pale malt, we go up to about... And again, it, it varies on the protein level of the barley, depending on what color you want to get. But we'll go to about 185 for our pale, which makes about a two and a half color. Drives off any of that DMS, so you don't get that anymore. A little bit darker color, and I think a lot more flavor at that level. And then we go up to a pale ale, Vienna, Munich, all that. The Munich 30 is the darkest. No, I take that back. We did a cocoa 80 once, which was a caramel 80. And I think we kiln that. We finished that at about 400 degrees. Okay. So our furnace will go up to 500 degrees, but the combustion point of barley is about 460. So if wow. I get close to that, it's just going to catch on fire. So well, I mean, that's a thing when you're going for those really dark roasted barleys that you can all catch on fire. Right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You haven't experienced that firsthand? Knock on wood, not yet. <laughs> okay. uh, it got pretty smoky when we were doing the 80, but I think okay. that was normal. The high temperature really yeah. developing yeah. that color smelled great. <laughs> I mean, oh, being yeah, in this barn, were you a little worried the first time oh, yeah. you took it up that high? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I was babysitting it pretty close. That wow, day. that's crazy. <laughs> One yeah. night in the old system, I was doing a Vienna, which is the highest I could do in the old system. System. I actually brought out an air mattress and slept in the malt house that night because I yeah. wanted to keep an eye on it. So. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, when you have like black patent type malts like you would use in a stout, like that really ashy, burnt character is very evident when you have a yeah. stout, you know, where it's very, very roasted. I should differentiate. I don't have a roaster. A roaster okay. turns constantly while you're kilning it. Uh -huh. Mine is a static kiln, so the drum is still. So I can only do caramels. I can't quite do crystals because you have to go past the point of combustion and if you do it in a static kiln like i have it it'll catch on fire um so that's why you have to have a constant rotation to mix it up 
You know, I was reading not too long ago, actually in preparation for this podcast about you know, different malting techniques and, you know, the black patent malt, which was a big development back in 18th century, I think. There was a new method of spraying water on it so it didn't catch on fire, basically. Yeah. So you yeah. could okay. attain higher temperatures without yeah. burning it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like the roasted barley that Guinness uses, I remember when I visited the Guinness place, they're like, you know, it's only a few degrees away from just going up in flames to get that really... Really, really dark, intense, roasted color and flavor. Yeah. Uh, since, you know, craft molding is, is, I would say, where craft brewing was maybe 10 years ago. It's really starting to take off. I'm part of a craft malt guild, uh, which started as in the uh, United States and Canada. But now it's grown to the whole world. And we have a conference, much like the OCBA. But, you know, we're all over the world. And that's been a huge help. People just like my size all over the world, you know, figuring this out, cutting your teeth. So anyway, within that group, um, a lot of people are roasting on a small scale. Some start with coffee roasters. But now, since there's an interest and in, in craft malt is becoming a thing now, <laughs> um, a lot of these manufacturers are making off-the-shelf craft malt roasters on a smaller scale. So that's been interesting. Everybody just, to this point, kind of built their own. The higher-end ones, if you want to pay for the premium quality, they have these sprayers okay. that go in and, yeah, just like you are talking about. Interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about your batch size. My batch size is two tons, so about 4,000 pounds. But you yield less malt than the barley that goes in because you shrink it with the moisture. So um, I put about 5,000 pounds in and get 4,000 pounds out. That's my batch size. And I have two of those. Like I said, I just doubled that in 2020. But even with both drums running at full capacity, I'll make an entire year what like Cargill or Malt Europe does in one batch. That's the difference. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we could say the same thing about land grant versus AB InBev, right? Yeah, for sure. One of the appeals of craft beer is the locality of it. You're drinking something that was made by somebody down the block. You go down there and the guy or girl who made it might be, you know, serving it to you. But in general, until recently, that's definitely not true of the malts and and largely not true of the hops either, right? Those came from probably a really big place, a half a continent away. So I think it's very cool. How many craft maltsters are there in Ohio? Three that I know of right now that are established. Nope, four. Sorry. House Malt's up in Cleveland. He and I started within two weeks of each other. He started first. He'll never let me forget that. He was two, <laughs> two weeks ahead of me. So he was the first in Ohio. I started two weeks later. And then um, now West Branch started about a year ago or so, south of Cleveland in Brunswick. Um, and there's also Barley Five Malt House in, uh, I think, Columbus Grove. Um, and I okay. believe they're farmers as well. I think they grow their own also. So. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, one of the things that's different between rustic brew farms and house malts, am I correct that the people who run house malts are not also farmers? Right. Yep. Yeah. And yep. that's probably typical of most, even craft malt houses. They they contract with farmers, so they're sure. not buying it on the open market. They do go out and contract the farmers to grow malting barley specifically for them. So they have a great relationship with their farmers. And I've met a lot of their farmers. They're, they're great people. But that, that is one thing that's different. Uh, it's got to be really tough for them. For me, I just did it. You know, I just yeah. did it myself. <laughs> if yeah. I lose my ass, I lose my ass. But And I did a couple times. <laughs> but, but for them to try to convince established farmers to grow this new crop that's super risky, you may not get malt quality. If you don't, you're upside down. It's not worth what it costs to put it out. That had to be really tough. So Kudos to their farmers yeah. that took the plunge and tried this. You know, that's and it's been great. I think more often than not, they have great malt quality. And maybe they were first, but you do it all. So it's a, you know, I mean, it yeah. took you another minute. Yeah, that's right. It's not yeah. a big deal. I mean, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
You know, you do have a day job as well, right? Yeah. yeah. More than a day job at some <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah, uh, 18-hour a day job, <laughs> yeah. I would imagine, in the oh, summer. seasonal. Yeah, yeah, right now it's pretty slow, so yeah. I can concentrate on the malt quite a bit now. Yeah, I mean, concentrating on this malt right now is great, and it's so good I to have a beer with you, right? concentrating on the malt. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, guys. <laughs> it's cool. a fantastic doppelbach. It really is. It really is. And uh, Trevor, nice job, if you're sir. listening, thanks so much, man, for the hookup. Absolutely. It's, it's great. And we've talked a lot about barley. And I think we've talked primarily about barley, but also here you have wheat malt, yep, corn malt, and also uh, rye malt. Yeah, that's right. How does your process differ? Does it differ with corn? Does it differ with rye? Does it differ with wheat? So yeah, it's quite a bit different actually. You know, everybody wants what you don't have, right? You probably know that from the brewing world. <laughs> and so, you know, I put all these different kinds of malts out there, barley malt. And don't get me wrong, that's been great. People love it. But you know, they ask, you should do wheat malt or you should do rye malt. Well, I've never grown rye other than a cover crop, which we kill in the spring to plant soybeans there. So I've never harvested rye, let's put it that way. And for me, trying to grow everything that I malt, you know, it's not just like flipping a switch and having a new product. I got to plan this two years in advance, you know, maybe even more than that to plant yeah, yeah. early maturity beans. So they come off in time in the fall to plant a cereal crop behind them so it's ready by the next summer and then you have to wait for it to break dormancy another few months before you can mold it so it's a long process that's a different grain bin you know you got to store it separate and we run out of grain bins and that causes my dad some stress that he's always on me about stop taking up all our grain bins with these crazy crops we've grown. <laughs> but no he's been he's been very supportive growing wheat for example is actually a lot easier it's been grown here all along. It grows pretty well in Ohio. It's also a winter wheat that we grow. And it takes the water and the cold a lot better than barley does. And malting it, it's a little bit shorter of a process. You're not really trying to get the amount of enzymes that you have to get out of the barley. So you don't have to let it go as long. It's more for flavor and color. And even if you do let it go longer, it's not going to produce the same amount of enzymes that, that barley does. So it's just, it's not the workhorse. Uh, and the same for corn, even more so for corn. I don't think corn will ever produce registrable enzymes. And then the same with rye, same, uh, just more for flavor and color. So it's mm -hmm. also a very short process too. Okay. Yeah. And for those of us that brew, you need other grains to convert those anyway, because it doesn't have the enzymes that are present in barley. You would generally only have a percentage of those as a part of your grain bill in a mash. Yeah. You still with, need so. a really good, strong base malt to convert all mm -hmm. that stuff. All malt brewing helps. That's where you need the 200 DP malt for adjunct mm -hmm. brewing to convert everything else. Um, but if you're using all malt, 80, 90, 100 DP works it's just fine. fine right? so. As a home brewer, and we've talked about it on different episodes, when I brew at home, I always get actually your malt or European malts. Those are always my base malt choices. Yeah. You know, I spent 11 months in Europe and, you know, in Britain, in Germany, it's all about the base malt, yeah. the quality of the base malt. It's actually what makes those beers great. One of the kind of questions I think of as a brewer is like, okay, what makes the rustic brew farm base malt better than, you know, the AC Metcalf that you're getting from Alberta or Montana or something like that? You know, you've probably thought about this question a lot. Oh, How, every day. Yeah. <laughs> Let me answer your question with a question. Would you say our malt, my malt is close to European malt? I mean, does it taste more like that than Canadian malt? I think so. You know, I have not done the test where I brewed a beer with your malt and then with, you know, the standard North American malt. But I've been very happy with the quality of it. I brew a lot of styles where I want to make them base malt centric. 
if you go back to um, the 90s, and Mark was a home brewer in the 90s, like the idea was, all right, well, the base mall in North America, you know, you're not going to get a great beer from that. So we're just going to use that to get the sugar. And then we're going to layer on this specialty malt and that specialty malt. Yeah, it's very heavy on specialty malts because you just didn't get a lot of character in the base malt at that time. Yeah. So for me, I'm, uh, I want to avoid that. I mean, I just want to like, obviously in some styles, you've got to have specialty malts. We're drinking a Doppelbach. You can't make a Doppelbach with just yeah. pale malt. But I have found that your malts have been uh, wonderful. I mean, I made a bitter a couple of years ago with your malts and uh, the Barley's yeast that Angelo gave me. And I named it after the national song. I called it Blood Buzz Ohio. It was a beautiful beer. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So, yeah, to answer that, I, I'm actually growing a European variety. So that is probably the biggest sure. contributor. Yeah. And I will talk about that just a touch. I have malted some Canadian spring barley, two-row spring, which is what, like, raw malt does. And they can't be any more different. I've taken two week-long classes on malting in Canada, um, you know, where it's second nature to them up there. And when you're molding spring barley, you do everything you can to slow it down because it's so vigorous. It just pops right off. It wants to generate so much heat. Those enzymes grow right out of the gate. You know, it's just crazy, which is why you get the 200 DP from like raw malt, you know, 160, 180, really high. When you're malting European varieties, winter varieties, you do everything you can to speed it up. It's a little bit with a dormancy, but it's also just not as vigorous and it's just his preference. Uh, some people say it tastes better, which I think it probably does. But it, it's harder I to agree. malt. Not, I wouldn't say harder to malt. It takes longer to malt. You know, you raise the germination temperature to try to promote growth, where with spring varieties, you're trying to slow it down because it's just going to go like a racehorse. So I think that might have one thing to do with it. It's also the end goal of the malt. In North America, when craft beer was non-existent, it was all for the big three. Yeah. What do they want? They're using adjuncts, so they want... DP. That's all they want out of the malt. No flavor. You know, they want it to be low in flavor, high in enzymes because they got to convert all the adjuncts. So I think that's why it evolved into that basically tasteless, powerful sure. malt. I mean, if you're a farmer, your customers were Budweiser, Coors, Miller, and you know, they're saying this is what we want. We want something that's going to give us enzymes because they're using rice, because they're using corn, and you need the enzymes as we've already touched on. And so, yeah, it makes sense that it just would have evolved towards something that has less flavor. You have to grow for your customers. Yeah, um, sure. I've been doing that my whole life, you know. So, yeah, that's what you have to grow for what they want. They're what they're going to purchase. Well, thank and God so, your customers are craft brewers. That's right. <laughs> and they've been great customers, too. This, you know, <laughs> that's the whole reason any of us craft molsters exist. We're on the coattails of the craft brewing industry. So was it? difficult or easy how was it to like start to get customers when you first started out so what would you think if some random farmer just walked in your door and said hey you know i'm growing barley and molding it in my backyard try some you know it was a little tough the quality concern was there and to be honest in the first system you know cut my teeth in that learning curve it was okay it made beer but it was not great malt little fish and grove city you know ill-mannered they were my first three customers they made great beer with okay malt. So <laughs> I'm really glad they did that. Yeah. So they took a risk on me because they liked the local part of it in the story. And they made good beer out of it, which was great. But then, you know, over the years, better equipment, more knowledge, more education. You know, without tooting my own horn too much, uh, I can compete with the commercial malts. It's, it's to that level. So, And that's just all with the community, like I talked about, the Craft Malt Guild and the upgraded equipment. 
Money solves a lot of problems. <laughs> Loans in my yeah, case. Sure, sure. So, <laughs> just a lot of well, debt. Well, that's, that's farming, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. Yep. When we were talking to Trevor yesterday, when we were picking up uh, this Lieutenant Dan Doppelbach, I asked Trevor, I said, is there a question you think we should ask Matt? And he said, well, ask him about how it was malting barley in the initial system before you got these rotating drums. And uh, the uh, that would keep you fit, it sounded like, from what he was describing. Trevor's probably heard me bitch about that quite a lot. <laughs> That's why he wants to talk about that. It was very much farmer engineered. I had no budget, no investors, which I still don't. And I wanted to keep it that way. You know, family owned, family operated. And so I didn't, I wasn't even sure if I could malt my own barley and make good malt. You know, I was always waiting for that one like hammer to come down. Like this will never happen in Ohio because of this, you know? So I just kind of trying to dip my toe in it as cheap as I could. And so I built a lot of the equipment myself. And yeah, we were loading it with uh, five-gallon buckets out of a super sack. Um, I was doing between 500 and 1,000 pound batches, so very small. I would have to climb into the drum and stir it twice a day with an electric post hole digger and walk around <laughs> and, and stir it up that way. And then killing it with a fan and some electric heating elements that I had to turn the breakers on one at a time to try to get the temperature I wanted. So it was very rudimentary, but it did make some okay malt, some decent malt. It wasn't bad. It wasn't great. It was somewhere in between. Well, there's a kind of uh, rusticity that is appreciated in craft beer circles to some extent. And I can imagine there were there was a, a rustic character to that. And it was authentic. Let's, yeah. We'll say that for sure. I, I was uh, reading this book uh, about farmhouse brewing techniques in Scandinavia, which is a great book if anybody hasn't read it. But they were talking about these Norwegian farmhouse brewers, and, and that's a tradition that still survives in some ways. And what they would do is, for the malting, is they would take bags of grain and they just go put it in the stream yeah. for a couple of days. And uh, so that was uh, the steeping phase, right? I think it was the whole process, actually. Oh, they did the whole thing I that way? I think germination was there, too. So that's what, you know, all of my educators have told me through this whole process. It's easy to make malt. You know, the grain wants to germinate. It wants to become a plant. It's hard to make good malt. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. So, yeah, you throw it in a bag, it'll grow, you know. If you're just making beer for yourself and the people who work on your farm, it doesn't have to be the same every yeah. year, right? It doesn't have to be the same every batch. But, you know, if you're north high and you're making cover crop, then there's a different level of consistency they expect. The way I looked at it when I first started and still held true now, the first thing I needed was quality. And I worked on that for a year or two. Once I got that and I felt pretty comfortable with that, I'm probably my biggest critic. So I, you know, still don't feel like we're there yet. But if I really look at the big picture, we're, it's pretty good. Second thing was consistency, like you said. How can I make this the same as that batch? When the first system I had guys call me and said, hey, this batch was great. Can you do that again? And I'm looking back at my notes like, I don't know. Let me try it, you know? <laughs> so, so with more automation, better controls, more knowledge about what's going on to the malt, able to be consistent. And so now I'm working on the third piece, which is quantity. Now the demand has grown pre-COVID. COVID was a little rough, um, but it's, it's still pretty strong now. And I think it's going to be very strong when it's over. <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to increase the quantity without sacrificing quality. So that's what I'm trying to work on now. That's awesome. Well, you've got the second drum. Does that double the amount you can do? Is that a fair assessment? Of a little more than double because it's, uh, it's able to handle slightly more than the first okay. drum. So yeah, it's slightly bigger. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at both of them. Yeah. So we slightly more than doubled the capacity. How much malt would you sell in a year, ballpark? 
2019, we sold about 100,000 pounds um, with just the one drum. So we should be able to a little bit more than double that. 2020, I'm not counting at all. It's off, yeah. off the books. It's, <laughs> for a lot of us in a right, lot of ways. Right. Yeah. If we were to talk about very traditional kind of malting, and like if I were you know going to go buy malt at the homebrew supply store, and I think later we're going to talk about Czech beer, and I wanted to make a Czech Pilsner, mm-hmm. I might go for floor malted bohemian pilsner malt i mean isn't it kind of similar to what you're doing and when you're rotating your drum yeah so the floor malting process the only process that's actually on the floor is the germination process that middle one um, yeah okay they still steep in a tank and then spread it on the floor the purpose of the floor malting is to spread it out so that you can absorb that heat away from it you only go about four to six inches thick i think on the green bed i think so that's what i I've could heard. be wrong but it's it's very thin and there's no air moving through it so you just you know rely on the ambient air around the grain to take that heat away but the same thing, you have to mix it up once or twice, sometimes three times a day, so it doesn't make a mat. So the way they do that is pulling a rake through it. And that's very, you know, hands-on, <laughs> artistic, you know. It's very artisanal, but very yeah. labor-intensive, isn't very, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and people are making great floor malt around the country, craft malsters like me. I was just not confident enough in the controls, because you have to keep the entire room controlled, you know, at a certain temperature, a certain humidity. Where in a drum, I only have to keep that drum at yeah. that temperature. So it was a little easier to control the environment for me in a drum. And obviously way easier to mix it, hit a button and turn the drum than, than rake it no, twice I, a day. I, I can see the, uh, the logic behind your decision. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, we've been talking about European malts and the tradition and the quality. And so actually Mark and I brought a beer that Mark obtained, which is uh, a beer that expresses Central European malts exceptionally well. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a beer that I've been getting a little bit of burial lately because they're shipping to Ohio. And this would be, if we were in the Czech Republic, uh, this is a dark lager. This would be a Tamave Pivo, which is a style that Pat and I both fell in love with while traveling in the Czech Republic. There is a particular restaurant, a brewery that we go to that is called Ufleku that makes only one beer at their whole brewery, and it is a tamave, and a very nice, rich, toasty malt character, an absolutely delicious beer. And this beer is made by Burial. It's called Dark, and this is a collaboration with Fair State Cooperative in Minnesota. It's just really damn good. So thinking about all the malt and malt-forward beers, we were thinking, wouldn't it be fun if we had a part two to talk about mashing? So we've got the malt made now by you, and we want to now take your malt and brew a beer with it. And then come back, and we can talk some more and enjoy that beer. That's the whole point of the malt, right? It That's the whole point beer. of the malt. Yeah. <laughs> so right. it's wasted otherwise. Yeah. Right, right. Let's pour this up and give it a try. I am absolutely in love with this beer right now. Maybe it would be useful just to let everybody know in the Czech Republic, they have a certain naming convention for their beers. So there's like the first part of the name means the color of the beer and the second part of the name means the strength. So in the color scheme, you've got Svetle, that would be a pale beer. You've got Tamave, which is a dark beer, like a brown beer. You've got Cherne, which is a black beer. And then there's something in between, which is called polo tamave, which I think means something like half brown, which maybe is an amber. I think that means chicken beer. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> 
But, uh, you know, I think this is going to be a lot of base malts, which in the Czech Republic you'd expect would be Pilsner, probably. And then something in the vein of Munich. Maybe something in the caramel vein, although in the Czech Republic they do a lot of decoction mashing to try and get those rich melanoidin flavors in that way. Can you say the name of this one more time? What was it again? Tamave. 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 Which uh, means? Well, it just means a dark beer. I don't know any Czech, really, other than pivo, which means beer. But yeah. uh, I think that's the most important word, right. actually. In any language. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Tamave means something like dark. Okay. Yeah. It and is very dark. Ch- and Cherne means black. And I was reading a little bit about what's the dividing line between Tamave and Cherne. And what I read was, can you imagine it would be any more black? And if the answer is yes, then it's a tamave. And if the answer is no, then it's a cherne. In that sense, Spinal Tap would be a cherne. That's right. Yeah, the blackest of black, of course. So it's funny you say that, Pat, because it is so good to see you today, Matt. And I know we've spent a lot of beer conventions together. Yes. Our conversations always go back to not dark beer, but dark music. That's right. As a lover of metal. So... I thought it would be fun while we enjoy this beer to talk a little metal since we haven't Sweet. gotten to for so long. And, you know, Iron Maiden's up for going in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, That's which awesome. is great. It's right? about time, right? About time. About I mean, time. you'd say that about any metal band right. that's been around long enough to be worth their salt. And Iron Maiden for sure. But I thought maybe we would maybe just share a concert memory. I mean, I've got a lot of metal concert memories. Oh, I'm sure. Matt, what is your concert memory? Dude, <sighs> I so I don't know which is worse for for concert going for me, COVID or having kids. Um, <laughs> probably having kids. Let's not compare those right, two. Right. Though. I mean, I'm sure your kids are a joy, right? Oh, they, are. they might kill you. But sometimes, I haven't been but... to a good concert since I've had kids. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, so it's been a, a drought for me. But now I'm a little bit younger, so don't laugh. My first concert that I remember without my parents, okay, was 1996 at Polaris Metallica. Okay, yeah, and great. And it just made me fall in love with Metallica at the time. Yeah. You know? So that was probably my first my first favorite band was Metallica yeah, uh, yeah. because of that. You know, I wasn't around in the 80s. You know, I was just too young. I've okay. got a deeper appreciation for them realizing, you know, that at the time, the only thing out there was Twisted Sister and stuff like that. You know, the hair band. Yeah. And then along comes Metallica, right? And like black oh, yeah. jeans, black t-shirts and just rocking your face off. So in that environment made it even more extreme and, and just awesome you know refreshing but you know at the time like i said it was 96 i remembered it polaris which is no longer a thing anymore it breaks my heart when i drive down the the road every day now oh yeah it. like, oh it's terrible i had a short stint working security at polaris no way uh i lived up there for just a short while in the area and i thought well i mean i'm gonna i could just come over here get absolutely free concerts get paid a little scrap you know yeah. i mean it wasn't much it was just a part-time job and uh I actually got fired for refusing to work the Dave Matthews band show. <laughs> so there's nothing more metal than that. That's, right. <laughs> That's so metal. <laughs> I was like, no, every man has to have his integrity. <laughs> I refuse to work. I even called that night. I said, I told you I would not work it. I still will not. And they said, well... We're going to have to fire you. You know that. And I was like, I accept. <laughs> it's a good, well, this is the first time I've heard that story. That was probably in the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um but other than that, you know, that was my first. And then several years later, I was at Ohio State. The Summer Sanitarium Tour came to Ohio State in the stadium. Yeah, yeah. Which was my other love is Ohio State football, right? So it was like just the best thing in the best place. I was not 21 at the time. I was only 20. Okay. We drove my brother's pickup, which was a Chevy long bed, eight foot bed. 
And uh, since I was on campus, we got there super early before anybody else. We got parking space right next to the door. <laughs> Went to the concert all day and we couldn't drink. So we had a slight edge in the, uh, you know, <laughs> nimble department. So we maneuvered <laughs> our way throughout the day to front row for Metallica. Oh, By that's great. Day, that's great. We were on the field in the front row. I mean, it was just awesome. And then we came out of the after the concert. And my brother's truck was overflowing with beer cans. <laughs> it was the last stop before the stadium. You had to get rid of your beer. So everybody chugged it and threw it in my brother's truck. <laughs> That's perfect. Two underage dudes driving home with a bed full of beer cans. <laughs> I've seen Metallica three times. I did yeah. not make that show. I think also it was based on metal integrity because I've been a career Metallica fan Pretty much since the Ride the Lightning tape yep. came out. I think that's when I was first The aw- tape. See, that's the key word there. Yeah, right? you're right. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now yep. we're going way back. <laughs> we're going to so, talk about punch cards here pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> In Columbus, Ohio, Kill 'Em All really didn't make its way to where I would have seen it. So the Ride the Lightning tape was the first one. And of course, they changed their musical style a lot with the times. And sometimes be it for better, sometimes for worse. And right. Of course, we all like what we love originally about the band. Pat and I just recently, in the last couple of years, went to the Rock on the Range uh, over at the uh, Crew Stadium and saw them. And really, in that time, it was like seeing the Rolling Stones. I mean, it was it is like, now. I mean, they bring a full show and it was just fantastic. But I saw them at Buckeye Lake. Some of our buddies had gone down early in the day and found a space to park. It's just like parking in your field, basically, yeah. when you go to Buckeye Lake. And we're looking for everybody. Where's Joey? Where's Brian? Where's Chris? You know, these are our metal boys from the hood back in the day. And we're looking around and ah, we couldn't see him. So we crack a beer, we're sitting on a hood, whatever, cranking Metallica, I'm sure, out of the Pioneer 6 by 9s in the go. rear deck of the car. And, uh, well, we found Joey. And what's up? You know, how are you guys doing? He's like, dude, can I ride home with you? Well, of course, you know, where is, where's everybody else? Well, earlier in the day, as everybody's partying, a group of bikers, while Chris was in the Portageon, decided to turn it over on top of him. And I don't know what transpired <laughs> to make that happen. I think no matter what you do to anybody, you never would deserve that, right? That's I mean, that bad. sounds like absolute hell. So <laughs> that was uh, one of the weirdest tailgate situations I'd seen. And <laughs> I think this was probably the first show I'd ever been at where... You know, stage diving is kind of a thing, and they were trying to prevent that at all costs. Stage, you know, so they had like first one where there's like a gate before you get to the stage, you know, where there's a little pit section where security security can uh, muscle out anybody that's trying to rush the stage or anything. I was just right there at the gate. We just stayed right at that gate, and man, when Metallica came on, and at this time they were a force to be reckoned with. Like this was a justice for all or something. Okay. Uh, tour okay and everybody trying to get closer when they started freaking ribs in the lungs annihilated (laughs) with this push and there's like a couple girls around us that were not necessarily with us but were in proximity Mm -hmm. i mean i'm trying to like help pass people into scary and then this is eventually like i just couldn't take it anymore climbed in into that cell myself and we, we probably went back. And, yeah, we went back about a third of the way back. We we're like, we'll yeah. take it at a distance now. It's it's a real thing, man. But I I would say that's one of the best pains there is, right? Of being pushed <laughs> from behind at a metal concert, second yeah. to getting punched in the face in a mosh pit, probably. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the the most raw. So these are really refined. The last two I talked about, like Summer Sanitarium and, and yeah, Metallica, you know, refined. Like you said, big shows, 
high production values. The one of the most raw concerts I've ever been to was, I forget what year it was. I was in high school. So like I said, I'm a little younger. That was in the late 90s, 98, okay. 99, somewhere in there. Al Rosa Villa. Slipknot was outside in the parking lot. Oh, wow. Right? Like when they were getting started. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think their first album was the only one out. Nine dudes on stage, all in masks. Yeah. <laughs> one main drummer, you know, just rocking it with his massive set. Two, I'm going to call them auxiliary drummers. All they were doing was banging their heads on a keg, an empty keg. <laughs> wow. Bloody face, everything. And it wow. was outdoors in their uh, Holy shit. in their parking lot. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. I guess you might call that a percussionist. Yeah, I would say. <laughs> That's a musical term for that. Concussionist? Concussionist. <laughs> concussionist. Uh, percussionist, there. concussionist. That's yeah, right. exactly, uh, man. Uh, That's crazy. Yeah, but it was great. That was, uh, I don't know if my parents knew I was at that show. Let's put it that way. It was, it was pretty raw. You know, it was yeah, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, you lived. That's right. What about you, Pat? Yeah. I mean, we were together when we saw Metallica. And you had seen them before, right? With uh, yeah, yeah. Ozzy. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I would say, you know, speaking of Ride the Lightning, when we saw them on Rock on the Range, the whole show got interrupted for a while because of Lightning. Yeah, yeah. Now that's metal. Yeah, yeah. So the whole show was, I don't know how long was it up for, half hour? Yeah, we had to wait a long time. Yeah. Yeah, but that was an awesome show. But since we're on the Metallica theme, I think this is maybe 86, but I saw Metallica as an opening act. Wow. And they were opening for Ozzy, and this was in Salt Lake City. That was the Ultimate Sin Tour, right? Ultimate Sin mm-hmm. Tour. And I was trying to figure out what Metallica Tour must have been. I'm guessing it would have been Master of Puppets. Jakey e. Lee was in Ozzy. And, and what a treat to see him in that time. I mean, oh, yeah. Jakey yeah. e. Lee's phenomenal. Yeah. 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 It was, it was just, yeah. That was, that was a great, uh, a great con. We drove down from Idaho, you know, which is, you know, we drove 150 miles to go to that concert. Of course, when you live in Idaho, you gotta drive 150 miles to go anywhere, practically. But uh, <laughs> now, pardon my ignorance, but was Cliff Burton still with them then? Yeah. So I should know the answer. I would think the answer is yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. On the Aussie tour, yeah. I How think many so. albums did he do with them? Well, he did the first three. Okay. Um, you know, Kill 'Em All, Ride the Lightning, and, and Master. Puppets, yes. Yeah. And then there was the answer. That I think that was on the Master of Puppets yeah, tour. Yeah, I think. I think so. You know, I, I mean, tour? I just looked up the dates that. Master of Puppets was released in 86. Yeah. Ultimate Sin also must have been right around that same time. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, the Wreck, was that on that tour? Right. That was in Sweden, wasn't that it? That was, oh, yeah. That's right. Because Newstead didn't come along for another yeah. couple years anyway, did he? Yeah, he was on Injustice for Injustice All. Injustice for All, right. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is how many years later? Uh, well, they had a uh, filler record in there that was like Garage Days. Right. That was before Justice? Yeah, it was. Not uh, Garage Inc. Garage Days okay. re-revisited. So there's okay. like a Garage Days like EP. It was like five songs. Oh. Newstead was on that. And that yeah. was in that time frame of Injustice for All. Okay. And, yep. and had some great songs like Diamond Head and Budgie. Yeah. And well, do you remember the double disc that was in the 90s? Garage Inc., I think. Yeah. It was like in the Load Reload yeah, time. exactly. Mm-hmm. And that had that a double disc. That had yeah, some good stuff. That yeah. had those five original songs it on okay. it. Yeah. Sure did. Yeah. 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 That's got really all good. kinds and it's got Bread Fan, yeah. uh, which yeah. is maybe the best B side Metallica <laughs> song ever. Yeah. I mean, Bread Fan's just freaking sick, man. Am I Evil is one of the first I tried to play on guitar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, it's funny talking about Diamond Head. Just the Ace of Cups, we got to see Diamond Head three, three years, years ago. ago yeah, Wow. They got to be pushing the age there, too. Don't yeah. They? <laughs> I mean, it's still just a guitarist, but I mean, he's the man. He's the riff guy. So, yeah. it, I mean, really. Yeah. And their singer is 
He is a much stronger singer, probably than the original. But man, just to see the guitar player from Diamond Head loading out his own shit, and it's yeah. like, <laughs> oh my God. I mean, wow. I, I think I thought about, should we just like volunteer to help him? And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it'd be, be cool. Be a groupie for a day. Come yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Ace of Cups is smaller than this small is house, that right? you know. Yeah. Matt, it's awesome to hang out with you. Guys, I really we appreciate got, you yeah, coming out. We can't out. take the whole weekend here. That's all right. Why not? I got nothing to do. <laughs> Well, I think we got one more beer to crack after this, too. The Trevor sent us packing from Grove City. so Nice. Those are always good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I don't think our listeners want to hear us talk metal all night. And drink more beer? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>